Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63. I'm going to begin at verse 15. I know the bulletin says 17, but I'm subtracting two. Isaiah chapter 63, beginning at verse 15, and I'm going to read right through to 65, 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Look down from heaven and see, from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us. But you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us. You, Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. Why, Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. For a little while your people possessed your holy place, but now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. We are yours from of old, but... You have not ruled over them. They have not been called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down. And the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned with fire and all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of impure meat, who say, keep away, don't come near me, I am too sacred for you. Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. See, it stands written before me, I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps, both your sins and the sins of your ancestors, says the Lord. Because they burn sacrifices on the mountains and defied me on the hills, I will measure into their laps the full payment for their former deeds. This is what the Lord says. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes, and people say, don't destroy it. There is still a blessing in it. So will I do on behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob, 
and from Judah those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them, and there will my servants live. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. But as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword, and all of you will fall in the slaughter. For I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. For Jesus' sake, amen. Isaiah foresees the calamities of sin and judgment and what will befall the people of God even after they return from idol, from exile. We've covered a lot of that material in the last two or three sessions. In short, Isaiah sees the city of God in wretched disorder and disarray. He longs for divine intervention to set things straight. Will God always be severe? And so what he prays for is what we've been calling revival. Do you want to know what revival praying looks like? Read the last half of chapter 63 and all of chapter 64. It is a stunning passage. Like us, we see various forms of decay, and we cannot help but ask in our prayers, Lord, in blessing others, will you pass us by? Will you not come and and lay bare your arm here too? Will you not rend the heavens here in Canada and come down? So what we have in this passage that I've just read are two steps. First, the God of severity disclosed in the desperate prayers of God's sinful, shattered people. And then second, the hope for renewal from God alone. So begin then with the God of severity, disclosed in the desperate prayers of God's sinful, shattered people. 63, 15 to 64, 12. The way this passage is cast lies in seven questions. And all of them are addressed directly to God. They're not questions in the third person. Why isn't God doing something? They're addressed directly to God. These are prayers. Do you want to learn how to talk to God when you pray for revival? Frankly, some of this language is shocking. It's, it strikes me as sometimes barely a whisker above blasphemy. And that's how far these prayer warriors go. Question one. Where is your love? Verse 15. Look down from heaven and see, from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us. But you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us, that is, we may be so sinful, so guilty that we can't even be considered decent Israelites any longer. It's as if Abraham, to be a man of integrity, would have to disown us himself. Yet, you are God. Do you know? Abraham might disown us, but how could you do that? Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledges, you, Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. In other words, where is your love? You see, these sorts of connections with Abraham crop up earlier in the book. In chapter 48, verse 1, 
Listen to this, you descendants of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel and come from the line of Judah, you who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. Yeah, they've got all the heritage, but they turn away from it again and again. And now, crying out for revival, Isaiah, picturing himself with these returned, frustrated, sin-enshrouded, condemned, exile returnees. He prays in their name and says, yeah, yeah, we may be written off as Israelites, but, but what about you, God? Where's your love? Where's your compassion? Look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. One might render that, I suspect, your lofty throne holy and beautiful. Just tuck it away at the back of your mind. I'm coming back to that because Isaiah comes back to it at the end of this section. That's the first question. Where is your love? Second question. Why have you hardened us and abandoned us? Verses 17 and 18. Why, Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. For a little while, your people possessed your holy place. That is, at one point, we did control Jerusalem. We, we operated the temple. But now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. Now, what is shocking about this prayer is that it is so much a confession of the sovereignty of God that they're within a whisker of blaming God for the state that they're in. Now, later on, we'll see that they don't quite go that far. They recognize, in fact, that it's their sin that has called down the judgment of God. But this is very strong language. Not, Lord, were you snoozing at the switch and you didn't see what was going on? Or, Lord, you've done your best, but it all depends on our free will? None of that. It's, why, Lord, do you make us wander from our ways and harden our hearts? The assumption seems to be that these people are really guilty and they know they're guilty. We'll come to that a little later, especially in 64.6. But now God, as it were, by His judicial stance, by His judicial judgment, has condemned them to hard-heartedness. It's, it's a bit like what you read in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians because some of the hearers of the gospel were so hardened against the truth, God sends them a strong delusion in order that they might believe the lie. In other words, just as on the last day people are hardened in their own sinfulness, so there's a sense in which God may bring that last day forward. All right, you've heard the gospel enough. You're not going to listen. The shutters are down. It's too late. You can't repent anymore. Your hearts are hardened. This is my judicial sanction. That's the way these people are feeling. Is the day of mercy over? You are sovereign. You can do what you please. Why are you hardening our hearts so that we can't turn? Why have you hardened and abandoned us? Third question. Where is your covenant faithfulness? Verse 19, we are yours from of old. You have not ruled over them, that is the other peoples who are busy persecuting us. They have not been called by our name. We are yours from of old. Where is your covenantal faithfulness to Abraham? Where is your covenantal faithfulness to Moses? Where is your covenantal faithfulness to David? Do you, do you see? Where is all of this? You don't owe all of these covenantal promises to the pagan nations all around, and they're beating up on us. Where's your covenantal faithfulness? Third question. And the fourth? Why have you not acted dramatically to save us? 64, 1 and 2. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. The mountains would tremble before you as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. It's hard to see in our English translations how all of these are 
Oh, that you would do this. So, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Verse 2, oh, that you would come down and make your, enemy, your name known to your enemies. And oh, that you would cause the nations to quake before you. In other words, at this stage, so desperate are they that they are not asking God to send along some small showers of blessing. But it's as if they're picturing God up there and they want him to say, enough already and open up this thing. I'm going down. And when he comes, he comes down in such glorious display of power that mountains are flattened, forests burn into flame, and you take away the metaphor, and what you're really saying is justice prevails, salvation triumphs, men and women repent, there is godliness, there is revival, there is reformation in the land, and the persecuting powers of cruel, harsh treatment, the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and the Medo-Persians, are put aside so that the covenant people of God can be safe. Oh, that you would render the heavens and come down. And in truth, Although the Bible tells us not to despise the day of small things, there have been times of such reformation and revival that it's hard to think of it in any other terms than that God has opened the heavens and come down. When Mao Zedong kicked out the missionaries, there were, at the most generous guess, a million Christians of all sorts of labels and non-labels in mainland China. About a million. Today, the most conservative estimates are close to 100 million. Can you imagine 90 million conversions, plus those who have been converted and then died since then? in about 70 years. When Mussolini went into Ethiopia and kicked out the Christian missionaries there, there weren't many of them and there weren't many Christians. People wondered what would be left after World War II. In fact, the church had exploded. There were hundreds of thousands of Christians. New England, under Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century, a spectacular reformation, still worth reading about it today. Or the 1857 Reformation revival, it went all around the world, started with a, a bunch of prayer meeting for businessmen in New York City. Or consider the two countries, Korea and Japan, different in many respects, but similar in certain respects as well. And in the 20th century, Korea exploded with the gospel, in South Korea at least, to the extent that there have been literally millions and millions and millions of people converted. The church is numerically extremely strong. It's sagged a bit in the last 15 to 20 years, yet Korea is the most amazing missionary-sending country now. And Japan? Japan, maybe 15,000 Christians of all sorts and all in the entire country. less than a small fraction of 1%. God came down in one country. And you can look to the Scriptures themselves. Hezekiah, Josiah. The moving revival combined with Reformation in Nehemiah. Reread chapters 8, 9, and 10. Solemn covenant renewal after days and then week-long Bible conferences with people standing in the open air, listening to scriptures being read in Hebrew, translated into Aramaic, and then, then expounded by trained expositors. The people weeping because they're hearing the word of God afresh. So then, God, why have you not acted dramatically to save us? We know you can do it. Fifth question, why can't we trust the lessons of history? Verses 4 and 5, since ancient times no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you. 
who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. The whole history of redemption testifies that God has acted again and again and again. After the Tower of Babel has multiplied sin again in the wake of the flood, God comes down and raises up an Abraham. After the people of Israel find themselves in slavery in Egypt, God comes down and raises up a Moses. <clears throat> After the nation is disintegrating in disarray and Saul has been a horrible false start for a king. God raises up David, a man after his own heart. God comes down again and again. We've seen you do it, God. We, we, we saw what you did with the ten plagues to free us. We saw what you did in the crossing of the Red Sea. We saw how you came down in spectacular display of glory at Sinai. You've done it again and again. Why are you not acting in line with the lessons drawn from history. You come down to help, to the help of those who gladly do right, verse 5, who remember your ways. That's what we read in history. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? If you don't help us, where is our hope? Number 6, Why is there no hope for us in our filth? Verses 6 and 7. No one calls on your name. It's, as al it's almost as if Isaiah is pausing here. and Instead of blaming God, he realizes that there aren't really many people asking for revival anyway. We can sound so desperate for revival in a conference might not last very long. There aren't that many people in the country that care a rip anyway. How many people do you think there are in Canada tonight who are praying for revival? Hmm? No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. And in part, this is because we are facing your judgment. For you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Isn't that what God says, what Paul says God sometimes does in judgment? They want to sin this way, so God gives them over to their sins. Canada wants to become more materialistic, God gives them over to their materialism. And they become more materialistic, so God gives them over to their materialism. It's a sex-sodden society from which we extract our identity, our importance, our sense of pleasure, our purpose, so God gives them over to it. And the result is that we're so hardened and blinded that no one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. You have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Look at verse 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts, all our religiosities, are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our, sun, our sins sweep us away. We saw that way of talking about our righteousness is condemning us in this morning's address. It comes back again here. If even our righteousnesses, our righteous acts, are so compromised with brokenness, what help is there? Do you know... We suddenly wrap up our sleeves and decide we're going to do really something nice for somebody in the church who's suffering a little bit, you know? And then we do the righteous act and pat ourselves on the back for having done the righteous act. So why were we doing the righteous act? Was it so that we could pat ourselves on the back? Or we make sure we talk to everybody in the church about it so that we know, no, no, everybody knows we've done the righteous act. Or we've done the righteous act and we've said, then we say to ourselves, we've done our good deed for this week, maybe for this month. And so that even the righteous things we do are so compromised with the love of self and feeling good about self. They don't emerge out of a heart that is so transformed by the gospel that we do begin to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength and our neighbors as ourselves. So why is there no hope for us in our filth? And finally... Why do you withhold your mercy? Verses 8 to 12. 
Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We're all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple, where our ancestors praised you, has been burned with fire and all that we treasured lies in ruins. Do you notice that connection again to the temple, holy and beautiful? God, in chapter 63, verse 15, lives in His lofty throne, holy and beautiful. Where God is, it's inevitably holy and beautiful. But now the temple was supposed to be God's place for self-manifestation in holy and holiness and beauty on earth. And now this place, which was supposed to manifest the holy, beautiful presence of God on earth, has been destroyed. Just as the church in the New Testament is regularly described by the Apostle Paul as the temple of God, the place where God manifests Himself in holiness and beauty. But if we slink down in our sins, where is the holiness and the beauty? Oh, no doubt there's holiness and beauty where God is in the holy heavenly temple, but not here. Don't be angry with us. Look on us. We're your people. This is a wasteland. After this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? We're not doubting that you ought to punish us, but will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? And that's how Isaiah prays for revival. It's stunning, isn't it? It's characterized on the one hand by human desperation. And theologically, on the other hand, it's characterized by a deep recognition that God is not only sovereign and holy, but personal. The prayers of the Old Testament are not the prayers of a people who believe in God's sovereignty and that's all. They believe that God is the potter and we're the clay, all right. But He's also a personal God. If you emphasize the personhood of God too much to the exclusion, to the exclusion of other attributes, then because of all of our experiences of personhood being bound up with mortal finitude, God eventually becomes finite. But if you emphasize God's sovereignty, His transcendence above space and time, and forget His personhood, then you're in danger of your prayers drifting off to become a kind of, okay, sera, sera, what will be, will be. God bless us, we need revival, in Jesus' name, Amen. And there's no fire, there's no passion, there's no desperation, and you're not dealing with God as a person. You're just be dealing with God as, a, as the sovereign despot. Listen, I never, ever, ever want to minimize the absolute sovereignty of God. But the glory of the God of Scripture is that He is also a personal God who is addressed as a person. Intercessions go to him as a person. This is the God who says in the Old Testament, turn, turn, why will you die? The Lord has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so the answer back is, well, if that's the case, then do something, God, because we're stuck. We're rightly damned. We're properly judged. But we can't do anything about it. Won't you rend the heavens and come down? And not just one question, seven of them. I said this morning that we cannot guarantee the manufacture of revival, but I can't help but wonder 
If just the churches represented in this room set their faces this year to seek God's face with this kind of desperate prayer for revival, what God might not do in his mercy. So the prayer is ended. With notes of desperation, plea, intercession, how will God answer? The prayers show that ruin is inevitable unless God intervenes. Now, at one level, Isaiah does not return to the theme of God the conqueror. If you had been reading the chapters right through, you would see that God dealt with the theme of God the conqueror, the Messiah the conqueror, in the immediately preceding chapters. Now his vision projects all the way forward to the new heaven and the new earth. We'll be coming to that tomorrow morning. God's return to Zion that is yet to be and the promise of ultimate deliverance. But on the short term, God presents a measure of hope and threat. Listen to how God responds to these pleas. Chapter 65, verses 1 to 12. I will cover these briefly. These verses are cast in two pairs, and each pair is tinged with tension. Number one, worldwide grace, verse 1, and worldwide justice and penalty, verses 2 to 7. Look at that more closely. Worldwide grace, verse 1, God speaks. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. What? There's Hosea begging, there's Isaiah begging for help. God says he reveals himself to somebody else, those who didn't even bother to ask. I was found by those who did not seek me, to a nation that did not call on my name. That is pagan nations, nations who don't know the name of Yahweh. I said, here am I, here am I. So part of the display of God's superlative grace is in the demonstration that it reaches all the way to pagans in all of their sin and idolatry and lostness. He saves them. And in some ways that stands out as a kind of contrast to the worldwide justice and penalty described in verses 2 to 7. All my day, all day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, that is, various forms of idolatry, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil. They're doing Ouija boards. They're doing astrology. They're trying to get control of their life through the various occultic practices that were so common in the ancient Near East. But they don't trust God. And who actually go so far as to say, to God, keep away, don't come near me. I don't want too much of you, and I don't want too much of your religion, and I don't want too much of the Old Testament law. It's a bit too narrow-minded. I'm too holy for you. I'm really quite a spiritual person, you know. I'm a very spiritual person. I have all of these rites and rituals in place. Don't bug me with your Christianity. I'm a spiritual person already. Such people are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day long. And God says, I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. In other words, it sounds as if God has more mercy on the ignorant pagans than he has on the covenant people of God who should know better but prefer their idols. And that's entirely in line with what Jesus himself teaches in a passage like Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 and following. Matthew 11, 20 and following, where Jesus says, Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, pagan cities of the coast, 
they would have repented in dust and ashes. Woe to you, Capernaum, another city where Jesus had displayed His gospel power and had preached many times and called people to repentance and performed miracles and cast out demons. Woe to you, Capernaum, because if what had been done to you, what had been given to you, had been given to Sodom and Gomorrah, it would have lasted to this day. Those sorts of contrasts presuppose several things. Number one, there are degrees of felicity in heaven and of punishments in hell. It'll be worse for one group than for another group on the last day. That's confirmed in Luke 12, 48, where Jesus Himself says some will be beaten with more stripes and some with fewer stripes. Number two, one of the criteria by which such distinctions are made is degree of knowledge. Israel is in a more dangerous place because it has received more revelation. It's as if God were to say to, 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 to us today, woe to you, Canada, for if the gospel heritage you've received, not least in the English language, and over three centuries of preaching, not perfect by any means, but with popular literature and Christian churches and excellent examples in the past, sacrifice to liberalism and materialism and unbelief and, and non-conversion and moral decay. If all of that had taken place in Afghanistan, it would have been a lighthouse to the nations. Which presupposes a third thing. God has contingent knowledge. That is, He not only knows what has been and what is, and what will be, he knows what would have been under different circumstances. Otherwise, he would not be in a place where he could say, if this had been done to Kabul, Kabul would have been a lighthouse to the wool world. Do you see? Now, that doesn't mean that Sodom is left off the hook. Sodom did what it did, and it will be condemned, but it will be condemned less than Capernaum, we're told, because God has contingent knowledge. Which is why, at the end of the day, when we pray for revival, we're not praying just for the nation. We're praying in the first instance for the revival of the church. That's where the greatest need is. Always. Always. To whom much is given from them also shall much be required. That's the first tension. Worldwide grace, going out to pagans. This is in line with what we saw in the first address, where God says, in effect, it's too small a thing that I just saved my own people. I'm going to call in the eunuchs who are broken vessels. I'm going to call in the foreigners, the sons of aliens. I'm going to see worldwide pull here, which is why the gospel goes out after the resurrection of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Go and proclaim the gospel to every creature under heaven. But then there's a second tension, the remnant and the damned. Verses 8 to 10, first of all, the remnant. This is what the Lord says. This is more encouraging now to the Jews. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes, and people say, don't destroy it, don't destroy it. You can still make wine from it. There's still blessing in it. Don't get rid of it. So there's still some more juice in that cluster. Don't throw it in the garbage. You, you can do something with that. That, that. that could turn into a bottle of wine. So will I do on behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. Maybe Israel as a whole is pretty bad, but I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them, and there will my servants live. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks, the valley of Achor, a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. All this uttered, of course, before Jerusalem went into captivity. But into captivity it would go. 
And yet God would bring many of them back. They came in three successive waves under Zerubbabel and Joshua. Then later they came back under a, another group, some with Ezra. Ezekiel brought into captivity earlier. Now some of them are coming back. And then a third wave with Nehemiah when the city walls are being rebuilt. Even at the level of, of restoration in history, God brings back a remnant. Some remain scattered, but God brings back a remnant. And theologically, it works this way too. If you read Romans 9 to 11, where Paul talks about the hardness that has befallen Israel so that the gospel has gone to Gentiles, yet he quickly insists, this does not mean that God has written Israel off. He says, after all, in the first place, I'm a Jew. I, I'm proof positive that God has not written off all the Jews. I'm a Jew. And God still has his remnant according to the election of grace. So there's an election of grace among Gentiles, an election of grace among Jews. He has not written them all off. So there will be answers to these prayers. But by contrast, the remnant and the damned, verses 11 and 12. But as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune, capital F, and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny. It's like somebody who's now trusting his future to Lady Luck, capital L, capital L. Oh, yeah, 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 you can trust your future to destiny. I will destine you for the sword, God says. And all of you will fall in the slaughter, for I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. So here's God, how God answers these um, remarkably desperate prayers. Hope for renewal in God alone. Hope for the nations. Hope for the covenant people of God, for the remnant. And severe judgment for the rest. Now I have two conclusions. One theological that becomes practical. And one purely practical. Can you bear with me for these two? Let's begin with a theological conclusion. We've seen pretty powerfully how God is presented as utterly sovereign, yet also a person who is to be petitioned. In fact, if you read quickly through the book of Isaiah from chapter 40 on, you see how often God is displayed as spectacularly sovereign. He laughs at the other gods. They can't bring about anything. God knows the future. He brings about the future. He is God. He alone is God. He is the actor. He's never the acted upon. He is God, transcendent, above space and time, utterly sovereign, and utterly holy, utterly good, and not one to hold back his punishments when they're deserved, and they're deserved pretty regularly. But yet, he is also presented here as personal, petitionable. What do you make of all of this? I want to suggest to you that there are two propositions that informed Christians will always believe. Two propositions. Proposition number one. God is absolutely and utterly sovereign. Nothing escapes the outer boundaries of His sovereignty, but His sovereignty never mitigates human responsibility. In other words, just because God is sovereign does not mean that therefore we're left off the hook. That's the first proposition. The second proposition. We human beings are morally responsible creatures before God. By that I mean we believe, we disbelieve, we obey, we disobey, we trust, we fail to trust. And we are held morally accountable for these, responsible, for these reactions before God. But human responsibility never makes God absolutely contingent. It's not as if God is taken by surprise. Or God says, I'm not going to do anything until John Smith has made his choice and then I'll do something. It's not as if God becomes contingent. He still remains sovereign. Those are the two propositions. Believing both of them at the same time is sometimes called compatibilism. Now, I warned you this is going to be a theological excursus. 
All compatibilism means is that you believe that those two propositions are mutually compatible. It does not mean that you can explain exactly how they're compatible or that you can give full explanations for all the details. After all, God inhabits eternity. I don't know how that happens. I don't know how the God who inhabits eternity works things out in space and time. I, I, I don't know what it means to be eternal, but, 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 but it happens. You can see in Scripture that those two propositions are taught again and again and again. Let me give three instances. Number one, Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20. That's an old standby for showing this pair of doctrines. The old man, Jacob, has died. Now the brothers are afraid that Joseph is going to vent his pent-up rage against them for having sold him into slavery. The only reason he's been polite with them, they think, is because the old man was still living and now he's gone. He's going to be really unmerciful and deck the lot of them. And so they go to him with a song and dance story. Quite frankly, Joseph is hurt by their mistrust. And then as he reasons his way through the whole thing, he refers back to the time when they sold him to the Egyptians through the Midianites. He said, listen, in that event, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it to me for good. Did you hear that? Not you meant it for evil, and unfortunately, God wasn't watching that day, so you got away with it. But then later on, he came back, and he outmaneuvered you, because he's a very good chess player, so he did a few other things, and it landed up that I was prime minister of Egypt after all. It doesn't say that. But rather, in one and the same event, they meant it for evil, and therefore, they're held accountable. God meant it for good. He is worthy to be praised. Nor are they saying... God's intention, meaning it for good, was to get me driven down there in an air-conditioned, chauffeured limousine. But unfortunately, you guys mucked it up, and as a result, I went down there as a slave and was sold to Potiphar. That's not what he says. In one and the same event, God was utterly sovereign and meant it for good. You were a moral disaster. You meant it for evil. For the truth of the matter is, God, though His sovereignty reigns over all things, all things, without exception, His sovereignty is such that He stands behind good and evil asymmetrically. That is, not the same way. He stands behind good in such a way that the praise is always creditable to Him. He stands behind evil in such a way, like the evil that sold Joseph into slavery, he stands behind evil in such a way that the evil is always to fall on the shoulders of the secondary causes, in this case, the brothers. But God never does evil. He's always good. He's good, 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 good. Always good. There's no shadow of turning with Him, James 1 says. He is always good. He can't help but be good. He's only good. So somehow, the Bible is leading us to believe that God is absolutely sovereign, so nothing happens outside the shape of His will. But He stands behind good and evil asymmetrically. And His sovereignty is, does not mean that the brothers are not responsible for what they did. They are responsible. In other words, my two propositions are still holding together. I didn't say I could explain them. I said that the Bible insists that they're mutually compatible. Now, for the second example, I'll choose a text in Isaiah, there are lots and lots and lots of texts that could be chosen. But because we're in the book of Isaiah, I'll choose one from Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 10. Here God says, through the prophet Isaiah, uh, woe to the Assyrian. Now, this is the, 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 the military super regional power in Isaiah's own day. He's not looking forward off into the long distant future when the Babylonians come in a century and a half later. This is the Assyrians. Woe to the Assyrian, God says, the rod of my anger in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I sent him against a godless nation. He means he sent him against the Jews. The mighty Assyrian power, known for its vulgar barbarity and its harsh military power, is the rod in God's hand which He, God, sends against His own people, the Jews, to punish them. I send Him against a godless people. I dispatch Him against a people who anger Me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. 
That's how God is using the Assyrians. Talk about God's sovereignty. But that's not what he intends. That is not what the Assyrian intends. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. Are not my commanders all kings, he says? That is, even my commanders are equivalent to the kings of the little nations around. Has not Kalno fared like Carchemish, cities he's already destroyed? Is not Hamat like Arpad and Samaria like Damascus and so forth? Shall I not deal with Jerusalem, verse 11, and her images as I dealt with Samaria and her idols? Therefore, the prophet Isaiah says, when the Lord has finished all his work, that is his work in using the Assyrians, against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will now punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and for the haughty look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done this, by my wisdom because I have understanding. I removed the boundaries of nations, I plundered their treasures. Like a mighty one I subdued their kings. As one reaches into a nest, so my hand reached for the wealth of the nations. As people gather abandoned eggs, so I gathered all the countries. Not one flapped a wing or opened its mouth to chirp. And God says, does the axe raise itself above the person who swings it? Or the saw boast against the one who uses it? As if a rod were to wield the person who lifts it up or a club brandish the one who is not wood? In other words, Assyria is going to be held accountable. Even if, looked at from another point of view, God is the one who used them as his club. And for them to think that they did it all on their own is as insolent and out of place and so unrecognizing of reality that it's as if a saw says uh, to its master, you know, I, I did this all by myself. It, it, it didn't need you. My two propositions are still hanging together, don't you think? God is absolutely sovereign, but that doesn't mitigate human responsibility. Human beings are morally responsible before God, but that doesn't make God contingent. One more example. This is, in fact, a common one in the Bible, a very common one, and it's bound up with the gospel. Acts chapter 4, the first whiff of opposition, serious opposition, before the first beating has broken out in the church in Jerusalem. Peter and John have been arrested and threatened. Verse 23, they go back to their own people. It doesn't mean the Jews, it means the Christian Jews. And they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, then the church raised their voices together in prayer to God, Sovereign Lord. You know, when people first face persecution, that's the first thing they confess? God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. If God isn't sovereign, there's no point praying to him anyway. Not when you're being beaten up and killed. Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Then they quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage, the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his Messiah. And then two verses, 27 and 28. Here are two propositions. Indeed, number one, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They are in a conspiracy to do evil. Verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Isn't that a remarkable pair? You see, supposing you believe verse 27, but you don't believe verse 28. Supposing you believe verse 27, you cut verse 28 right out of the Bible. Then you believe that the reason why Jesus went to the cross is because there was a two-bit conspiracy in a tiny country at the eastern end of the Mediterranean in the first century, a two-bit conspiracy between Pontius, Herod, Pilate, P P uh, Herod the rulers of the Jews, to, to, to put Jesus on the cross to shut him up. That's why Jesus died on the cross. In which case, how is it a sacrifice that pays for sins? How is this God's plan? Uh, how does this fulfill Isaiah 53? Uh, how does this fulfill the Passover rite? Uh, how does it fulfill Yom Kippur and the sacrifices that pay for sin? Uh, how, it doesn't hang together. It's just an accident in history. That's all it is. But supposing you don't believe verse 27. Now you just believe verse 28. The reason Jesus went to the cross is because the actors, Parrot and Pontius Pilate and so on, they, it's not so much they were in a conspiracy. If they were in a conspiracy, it's all that God had ordained in any case. God had ordained it was going to happen this way. Well, that means that Jesus goes to the cross because it's the plan of God, but there's nobody to blame. I mean, 
God guaranteed that it would happen. It's not Pilate's fault. God guaranteed that it would happen. It's not Herod's fault. God guaranteed that it would happen. It's not the ruler's fault. It's nobody's fault because God is sovereign. But God is sovereign over everything. Are we just cogs and machines? God moves the bolts around? No responsibility anywhere? In other words, you cannot make sense of the cross of Jesus Christ unless you believe in compatibilism. Unless you believe at one and the same time that God is absolutely sovereign. That's what brought Jesus to the cross. It was God's plan. Hinted at already in Genesis 3. Clear in the sacrificial system. Clear on the day of atonement. Clear in the Passover sacrifice. Clear in Isaiah 53, this book. Clear, clear. It was God's plan. So that the human actors did what God had decreed beforehand would happen. But you must also believe with all your heart that they were responsible for their actions. Otherwise, there's no need for a sacrifice for sin. There is no sin. We're just little puppets. We're just little pieces that God moves around the universe. In which case, there's no guilt. There's no responsibility. Do you see? You must believe that God is absolutely sovereign, but that does not mean that human sin is mitigated. And the fact that these people were involved in a human conspiracy that was really malicious, yes, 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 that was terrible, but that doesn't mean that God is contingent. He had planned this from before the foundation of the earth. Revelation 13 and 17 insisted in the mind of God, Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. Now you might say, Don, um, the hour is late, and we seem to have moved a long, long way from Isaiah 65. But I don't think we have. I, I hope this theological excursus will show a little bit of final light on Isaiah 65. You see, on the one hand, in our suffering, it's important to let those two sides of the tension play out. God is sovereign, so we can trust Him. But we must act responsibly when we face suffering just the same. And in our evangelism, we evangelize people. It's our obligation to do so. But if God saves someone, it's because God, by His sovereign power, actually reaches down and saves them. Do you, do you see? All those tensions exist all the time in, in suffering, in evangelism, but also in prayer and in revival. We pray to a sovereign God and ask Him for forgiveness. We pray to a sovereign God and ask Him for help. We may pray with desperation, as in these prayers before us, because God is personal. I do not know how to put all of those things together, but I see that they're all held together in Scripture all the time. I see that they're there. And if in God's mercy He reaches down and provides spectacular salvation for us, before the end, when the salvation will certainly come, if he does, then we'll stand up and sing, I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my heart to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found by thee. Thou didst reach forth thine hand in mine and fold, I walked and sank not on the storm-swept sea. It was not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me. And that's why the church continues to pray for revival. We deal with a sovereign, personal God in whom there are mysteries of omnipotence that I don't pretend to be able to unpack. But I see that He is the only one that can spare us the judgment we deserve, the only one that can bring reformation and revival, the only one. And we lay our petitions before Him with, with, with perseverance and, and, and passion, knowing that if He does answer us, it is of His grace, and even the heart to desire to do this finally is a fruit of His grace working in our lives. And you know what? If God were to send genuine reformation and revival, it's the last theological, practical lesson you get from this passage. 
if God were to send Reformation and Revival, it wouldn't last. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it wouldn't be a good thing. Reformations and revivals have lasted for a few weeks, a few months, and sometimes, in the case of the Great Evangelical Awakening under Whitfield and Wesley and a few others, about 60 years, 60 years of spectacular growth. God can do it again. But after all, God had sent such revivals to Israel. Ask Hezekiah. Ask Josiah. A little later, ask Nehemiah. Nehemiah goes away for 12 years and comes back and sees a whole lot of damage. They don't last. This does not mean that they're not great blessings. While they're there, many, many people are converted. Many, many people cleave to righteousness. The whole society may be transformed, but sooner or later, another generation of sinners is, be is being born. They don't last. Nothing will finally last until the new heaven and the new earth. And that's why this book presses toward the new heaven and the new earth in chapter 65. That's the ultimate answer to the prayer for revival. I was married in 1975. This year my wife and I celebrated our 40th anniversary. It's a strange society that thinks that's a great achievement these days. We honeymooned in Wales. My wife is English. So we honeymooned in Wales. We were poor as church mice. We rented a trailer. That's where we honeymooned. And one afternoon on our honeymoon in South Wales, we visited the castle at Tenby. What are you going to do in Wales but visit castles? Coming out of the castle at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we wanted a cup of tea. My wife is English. And we looked around, and there was an old church... The sign said, Calvinist Methodist Church. If you think that's a contradiction in terms, you haven't been to Wales. There are a lot of them around there. <laughs> They're mostly flat-out liberal now. But it was offering afternoon tea, so my wife and I went in. And just looking at the literature on the various tabletops and so on, we could see that this church was so far left, so far swamped by liberalism, so far left you needed field glasses to see it. It was way out there. And there was this dear old duck behind the table who was pouring cups of tea, you see. And immediately, my mathematical brain, my name is not Paul Martin. <laughs> my mathematical brain couldn't help but remembering, this is 1975, Welsh Revival in 1904, 1905. I wonder where this dear lady was back then. It's only a few decades away, you know. Seven decades. She looks like 80 or 85. wonder where she was. Do you see? Now, the Welsh Revival was really part of my reading of serious revival literature. When the Welsh Revival started in 1904, it was a mighty movement of God. Thousands and then tens of thousands were converted. Churches were planted and glorious singing up and down all the coal valleys and so on. Spectacular things. And then it petered out in horrible disarray in 1905. I could tell you some of the reasons, but it did. So I sidled up to this woman and I said, uh, been in this valley long? Oh, yes, all my life. Must have seen a lot of changes in this church in that time. Oh, yes, a lot of changes. What's the minister like who's here now? Long pause. Some seem to like him. <laughs> Which, frankly, didn't sound like the most ringing endorsement. So I thought to myself, Don, for goodness sake, ask your question. Just, just blurt it out. I said, ma'am, tell me, is it true what they say about the Welsh revival, that when the miners were converted, they lost so much of their vocabulary that the pit ponies that pulled the coal out of the mine didn't understand them anymore? I, I'd read that somewhere. And she said, oh, you know about the Welsh revival? That's exactly what happened. My father was a miner. He lost more than a third of his vocabulary. People couldn't understand him. I was converted in the Welsh Revival. I was just a wee lass. There was singing in the valleys night after night. We built chapels in the valleys that year. And then I heard 40 glorious minutes of stories on the Welsh Revival. 
But I know how the Welsh Revival ended up. It ended up with people no longer seeking God, but seeking experiences. Instead of doing biblical exposition and solid evangelism with a rare understanding of the gospel, instead, they were just looking for the experiences they'd had the year before. The whole thing petered out in quirkish idiocy. But in all fairness, tens of thousands were converted. I said to her, what do you do, my dear sister, to get Bible teaching now? She reached across the table and patted my hand. She said, I listened to Back to the Bible broadcast out of Monaco. Not for a second do I want to minimize the gracious gift of the Welsh revival. But no revival lasts forever. Not until the new heavens and the new earth. That doesn't mean we don't ask for them. It doesn't mean we don't petition the face of God. God in the mystery of His sovereignty and His personhood. In His zeal for holiness, His promise of judgment, and His appeal to turn, turn and live. We, we petition, we petition yet again in the hope that God will have mercy and delay the judgment that must otherwise come. Let us pray. So we do pray, Lord God, for mercy. Hear from heaven, rend the heavens, and come down, we beg of you. We are the blood-bought church. Can you possibly forget the new covenant? The name of Christ is despised or ignored. Will you not rend the heavens and come down? In fact, we dare to pray that you would come down upon us corporately, Individually, in a crowd this size, there are undoubtedly some who, who have never actually been converted. Will you not come down and show yourself to them now so that they will see the desperate state in which they find themselves and lift their hearts and minds to heaven even where they sit and cry, God, be merciful to me a sinner. For Jesus' sake.